Our sermon passage this morning is continuing in the book of Proverbs. We are at the end of chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, and we'll go through um, the end of chapter 7. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your hearts always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not despise her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So if he goes in to his neighbor's wife, none who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts." My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our love, a fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know what it will cost him his life. And now, O listen, sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. And her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Thanks, Nikki. Good job. That was, that's a lot. Um, yeah, so uh, like Nikki said, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Proverbs this morning. And if you've been with us 
for the last few weeks, uh, you, you noticed a couple things. You probably noticed a couple things about what Nikki just read there. One is it was really long. <laughs> uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Um, two, it sounds an awful lot like the passage that we were in a couple of weeks ago in chapter five. Um, could almost, man, when I saw John's handout a couple weeks ago, I was like, can almost just make some extra copies of that and use it again um, this Sunday, um, except there's no positive encouragement this time like there was uh, in chapter five, so sorry about that. Um, but uh, instead of repeating the same sermon again, we're going to treat this as part two of the message that John gave a couple weeks ago, partly because that is what this is. Um, I, I'm really not 100% sure why Solomon broke up chapter five and chapter 6, verse 20 through 727, by sticking 6, 1 to 19 in the middle of it. Um, he's the wisest man who ever lived, so I'm sure he had a reason. Uh, but but you, the, the thing is, you have to have chapter 5 in mind as you read chapter 6, 20 through 727, or you're going to miss some really important connections and lessons. So it's a part 2 in that sense. Um, we're also going to treat it as a part 2 because, man, John's sermon couple weeks ago was just really good um, and, and seemed to really spark some great discussion and some great questions. It, it was like it made it okay to talk about some things that we've needed to talk about, but haven't been sure how to start those conversations is kind of what it felt like. And so I'm, I'm really thankful that we're here this morning in another passage that will allow us to continue that conversation together. Because the, the reality is um, all of us either have or will struggle with sexual sin in one form or another. Some are more open about it. Others have hidden it really well, or, or at least think that you have. Um, some of us, by God's grace, have seen a lot of growth and holiness in this area. Others of us are, are struggling with sexual sin daily and don't know what to do and, and wonder if you'll ever be free of it and are barely hanging on to hope. And, and so all of us, whichever of those, any of those boats you find yourselves in, all of us need the lesson that Solomon's teaching his son in this passage here. And so, so in chapter 5, we saw three dangers of sexual sin. Now in chapter 6 and 7, we're going to see one more. There's one primary danger that Solomon is warning his son about in this passage. Um, the, the reason that sexual sin is so dangerous that we're going to see here in chapter 6 and 7 is that it will trap you and it will kill you. It tries to convince you of the exact opposite. Uh, it tries to convince you that it's freedom and it's life to give in to sexual sin. But that is a lie. If you start down the path of sexual sin, it will get its hooks in you and it will trap you. And if you don't break free, the end of that path is, is death. It will cost your life. And so if you're here this morning, and by God's grace, you haven't been trapped by sexual sin yet, you need to hear the warning in this passage to stay away from sexual sin and to guard yourself from getting caught in its trap. But if you're here this morning and, and you're saying, I know, I'm caught in the trap. It feels like I can't get out. You need to hear that it's not too late for you yet. Like, there's hope for you. you. You need to hear the warning in this passage. You need to hear the warning of where the path that you're on is headed. And you need to hear, though, how you can be set free, how you can guard yourself against falling back into that trap again. So, so that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to see the danger of sexual sin. 
and we're going to talk about how you can guard against falling into the trap of sexual sin. And I hope that this will help us continue to build on the conversation that we started a couple of weeks ago. So look in your Bibles there, chapter 6, verse 20, and you'll see first why you need wisdom. Why you need wisdom. You need wisdom because is what we're going to see in um, chapter 6, verse 20 through 24, and then we'll also look at the beginning of chapter 7. You need wisdom because it will guard you against sexual sin. So just as we've seen all through the book of Proverbs so far, these first nine chapters are made up of different lectures from Solomon to his son, calling him to listen to his teaching and instruction. And, And that's what we see again here. And so at one level, remember, the point of all this, chapters 1 to 9 together, if you remember all the way back to the introduction sermon that John preached several weeks ago, the the point of this whole introduction is to stir our hearts to be ready and eager to listen to the main part of the book of Proverbs that starts in chapter 10. The goal is that by the time we get to chapter 10, we're, we're hungry for the wisdom contained in the rest of the book. Like We're so convinced of our need for it and eager to listen to it that we're ready to apply it to our lives. And so that's, that's one thing that's happening here. At another level, though, several of these lectures also give a specific reason why we should listen to this teaching and instruction. And that's what we see here in this passage. And we're going to see it twice. We'll see it again at the beginning of chapter 7. But look first at chapter 6, verse 20 here, and follow the flow of thought in these verses. So verse 20 and 21 here, it says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Um, We've seen similar language to this over and over again as we've gone through Proverbs. Keep here has the idea of, of guarding something like a treasure, holding on to it as something incredibly valuable. So don't forsake them. Don't leave them behind because of how valuable they are. He says, bind them on your heart, tie them around your neck. So so keep them with you all the time. If you do, verse 22, they'll stay with you all the time and they'll help you. It says, when you walk, they'll lead you. When you lie down, they'll watch over you. And when you awake, they'll talk with you. So, So it's this picture of the teaching becoming a close friend that guides and guards you at all times. And so why would you want that? Verse 23 for or because the, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. So we've seen this picture all through Proverbs so far as well. Solomon is constantly contrasting these two paths. You've got the path of wisdom and the path of folly. The path of wisdom leads to righteousness and its end is life. The path of folly leads to sin and its path is death. It ends in death. And, and that's what we see again here. The teaching and the instruction lights the way on the path that leads to life so that you won't stumble on it or stray away from that path. And so why specifically do we need to have the, the wise path that leads to life lit up for us? That's what we see in verse 24 there. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, so, so that's the goal in all this. That's one of the reasons to listen to the instruction and the teaching in this book. That's the reason to listen to wisdom. We see the same flow of thought at the beginning of chapter 7. So go ahead and look there with me because it's helpful to see both of these together. So chapter 7, verse 1, you see the same thing. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments within you. So again, pre- protect them like treasure. Keep my commandments and live. Again, they'll lead you on the path of life if you follow them. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. 
So we'll come back to this later, but notice in both of these passages, there's both an internal and an external element to this. Bind them on your heart, tie them around your neck, write them on your heart, bind them on your fingers. Verse four, say to wisdom, you're my sister and call insight your intimate friend. So again, pursue this close relationship with wisdom. Think of her like your sister or like your closest friend. And again, here's the purpose of all this, the purpose of listening, keeping, following Solomon's teaching, of pursuing wisdom, verse five, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So in both of these sections, Solomon tells his son that one of the main things that listening to his teaching and applying them to his life, what that's gonna do for him is it's gonna protect him from this woman. And this woman throughout this passage is symbolic of sexual sin. And so the emphasis throughout the passage is more on adultery, but the principles here are intended to be applicable across the whole spectrum of sexual sin. It's not only adultery that's to be guarded against here, it's, it's all sexual sin of any kind. The thing is God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman who would enter into a covenant relationship with each other and then be faithful to each other for life. Like that's the only context that God designed for sex. So you could say that the definition of sexual sin is acting as if someone who is not your husband or wife is your husband or wife. Like that's what you're doing when you commit adultery. But that's also what you're doing if you're looking at pornography or fantasizing about someone in a book or movie or TV show, or someone you see walking down the street. Like, that's what you're doing if you're going too far physically with your boyfriend or girlfriend. That's what you're doing if you're pursuing an inappropriate relationship with your coworker. You're treating someone who's not your husband or wife as if they are your husband or wife. The, the words that are used throughout this passage for the woman here um, emphasize that she belongs to someone else. She's forbidden. She's not yours. She's off limits. That person on the screen is not yours. Your boyfriend or girlfriend is not yours. Your coworker is not yours. It doesn't matter if they're married to someone else or not. If they're not married to you, they're off limits. And so just to be clear in all this, the reason that sexual sin is personified as a woman here is because Solomon's talking to his son. If he was writing to his daughter, it would be the other way around. So, so all this is applicable to all of us men or women, and it's applicable to all of us, no matter what type of sexual sin you struggle with. That's who Solomon is trying to protect his son from here. Sexual sin in all its forms is being personified as a woman, and he's pleading with his son to listen to his teaching and instruction, to listen to wisdom instead of listening to her. Did you catch that at the end of both of those sections there? It's not just the woman herself that Solomon is concerned about protecting his son from. It's, it's her smooth tongue and smooth words. We'll see this illustrated in chapter seven when we get there, but, but the point here is that if you listen to wisdom, it'll guard you against listening to the smooth words of sexual sin. So that's the first point here. We, we need wisdom because wisdom will guard us against sexual sin. And that leads to the next point on your handout there. Why is Solomon so concerned about this one particular topic? That's what we're gonna see next and kind of already gave this away in, in the introduction there. Why sexual sin is so dangerous. Uh, it's so dangerous because sexual sin will trap you and kill you. 
We see this in the next couple of verses there in chapter 6 and then again at the end of chapter 7. So first look at chapter 6, verse 25. It says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. So Solomon tells his son first to not desire her beauty in his heart. Like, that's where sexual sin begins, by going that extra step beyond just noticing someone to desiring them in your heart. Instead of seeing that person and saying, not mine, off limits, and turning your thoughts away from that path, you entertain those thoughts and desire what you see. But, I mean, the thought is, like, come on, it's, it's all in your head. Like, how dangerous can those thoughts be? And his point is, like, that's exactly what makes sexual sin so dangerous. At first, you think it's no big deal. It's just some thoughts in your head. No one else can see it. No one will know. But Solomon's point is that sexual sin is a trap. It'll capture you, and it'll hunt you down. Your precious life is at stake. So don't even start down that path. And so that's what we see here in um, 625 and 26. We see the same thing at the end of chapter 7. Look at verse 21 of chapter 7. It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver and a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Like, this is why Solomon is so concerned to protect his son from the smooth words of the forbidden woman. Like this man didn't guard himself and instead of resisting, he gives in. All at once there, it has a sense of impulsively. Like he, he doesn't stop and think, he just follows his feelings and, and he doesn't realize it, but he's doomed. Look how he's described, described here. He's described as an ox goes to the slaughter. Like it's being led to its death, it has no idea. He's described as a stag caught fast, like it, it's trapped and it can't get away. And so it's an easy fatal shot for the hunter then. He's described as a bird rushes into a snare, like it doesn't see it, it flies right into it and it's trapped and it's gonna cost it its life. And he's not the only victim, like just keep going in chapter seven, verse 26, like look at the trail of bodies, like for, for many a victim she has laid low in all her, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol going down to the chambers of death. Like, oh, do you, do you see where the path of sexual sin leads? Like, do you see how dangerous this path is? The danger doesn't, just isn't in, at the end of the path. It's that if you even start down this path, it'll trap you. Like, sexual sin is uniquely deadly in the way that it gets its hooks in you and captures you and hangs on to you and keeps pulling you down the path to its ultimate end. Like, that's why sexual sin has claimed so many victims, because they didn't realize that by looking at that one image or entertaining the attention of that one person, they were stepping into a trap. The rest of, of chapter 6 then emphasizes just how trap-like sexual sin is. Back up to chapter 6, verse 27 here, we'll see first that Solomon says that the consequences of sexual sin are inevitable. Consequences are inevitable. Verse 27, can a, man, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. 
The point here is certain actions have certain consequences that are just going to happen. No matter how hard you try, it is impossible to carry a burning log up next to your chest and not set your shirt on fire. Um, and, and I know that there are, we've all seen these like fire walkers that do the stunt where they walk across hot coals and look like they're fine, but, but the whole point is it's a trick. Like if you tried that for real, you'd scorch your feet. And, and the point here is sexual sin is just like that. It, it's playing with fire. You will get burned. You may think you can get away with it, but you can't. There, there are inevitable consequences for giving into sexual sin. Second, he says that the consequences of sexual sin are inexcusable. See that in verses 30 and 31. It says, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. The point here is stealing is a crime. When a thief steals food because he's starving, though, there's something in us that, that kind of understands and feels compassion for the thief. But that doesn't excuse the crime. Like, stealing is still illegal. So just because we may feel some level of compassion and understanding for the thief, like, if he gets caught, he still has to pay the penalty for his crime. And so the point is, if even a minor, understandable theft, like stealing some bread when someone is starving, is still inexcusable, how much more is that true for a much more serious theft, like stealing someone's wife? If you go down that road, you will pay the penalty. That's, that's the point. Third, then, the consequences of sexual sin are inescapable. See that in verse 32 through 35. It says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation he will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So we see the unescapable consequences of sexual sin in a couple of ways in these verses. First, in, in verse 33, you see that the consequences of sexual sin can't be undone. The wounds there are physical wounds, probably in this case from the woman's husband. Um, and the dishonor and disgrace are the shame and humiliation that comes from sexual sin. Like once you've committed sexual sin, it, it can't be undone. It can't be erased. You can't take it back. And the pain and the shame that come as a result are, are long-lasting. Second, verses 34 and 35, you see that the consequences of sexual sin can't be paid back or paid off. Again, the man here is the, the woman's husband, and obviously, like, he's going to be furious at the man who stole his wife. And there's no price that can be paid to him to appease him. Like, he's going to exact his revenge in every possible way. He won't hold back. The consequences are inescapable. And so all this together, everything that we've talked about so far, all this together is meant to leave us feeling the danger of sexual sin. Like, sexual sin will trap you and it will kill you. Solomon doesn't just leave it as a, as a general warning like that, though, that, that sexual sin will trap you. He, he tells a story then in chapter 7 that illustrates how sexual sin tries to trap you. So you can see that next on your handout there, how sexual sin tries to trap you. Um, and so we don't know whether this was an actual scene that Solomon had, had really seen out his window or whether he's just making it up. But the point is, it's real enough that it could be us and we ought to learn from it to make sure that we're not the guy in the story here. 
So let's look at this story and, and draw out a few principles that will hopefully help us guard against falling into the trap of sexual sin. So first you can see, um, starting in chapter 7, verse 6, you can see that sexual sin preys on the vulnerable. Sexual sin preys on the vulnerable. It says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So first here, notice who this guy is. He's one of the simple. We've seen that term a few times in Proverbs already. It, it means gullible or uncommitted. He's someone who is keeping his options open. He's not committing himself to anything. And the problem with that then is that he's easily swayed then by the wrong things. And so in the context of what we've already looked at, the point here is that he hasn't done what Solomon's been pleading with his son to do. He hasn't committed himself to wisdom, and so he's left himself vulnerable. So how about you? Like, are you leaving yourself vulnerable in this way? Are you leaving your options open, not committing yourself to truly pursue wisdom and walk in wisdom and grow in wisdom? Like, that's been one of the lessons all through Proverbs here. You have to choose a path. You'll either be on the path of wisdom or on the path of folly. And the reality is nobody stumbles into the path of wisdom. So if you're not intentionally choosing the path of wisdom and committing yourself to that path, you're leaving yourself vulnerable to sexual sin. And not only is he leaving himself vulnerable because he hasn't committed himself to wisdom, second, look at where he is. Verse eight, he's passing along the street near her corner and taking the road to her house. So it's kind of funny because a number of commentaries on this verse downplay the significance of this. They, they try to make the point that he probably didn't know where he was. There's no indication here that he was intentionally seeking her out, which may be true. But this is one of the places where we have to have chapter 5 in mind. So flip back to just a page in your Bible there probably. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. What, is, what does that say there? Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house. So now flip back over to chapter 7, verse 8, and, and look at where he is. He's on the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. So with chapter 5 in mind, when we read this verse, we're supposed to go, uh-oh. Like, that's not good. That's, he shouldn't be there. Where, whether he's intentionally looking for her or not, he shouldn't be there. That's the point. He should have stayed away from there. To go there is putting himself in a vulnerable, dangerous place. So again, how about you? Are you leaving yourself vulnerable in that way? Are there places that you're going physically, mentally, on the internet, on your phone, on TV? Maybe you're not necessarily intentionally pursuing sexual sin exactly, but you're putting yourself in an extremely vulnerable place where no one would be surprised that you got trapped. So not only then is he in a vulnerable place, look at when he's there. Verse nine says it four different ways. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night, and darkness. Like he's there in the dark. He's in the shadows when no one's gonna be able to see you or recognize you. Like everybody knows that nothing good happens in that kind of place at that kind of time. So, so he's vulnerable because of the time that he's out wandering in this place as well. And so again, how about you? Are there certain times that you know that you're more vulnerable to temptation? 
Are there times when you think no one's going to see, no one's going to know? Like these three things are a dangerous combination. That's what we got to see in these verses here. An unwise person in an unwise place at an unwise time is a recipe for disaster. Like you can feel it in this story. But how often do you put yourself in that exact position? Like the woman hasn't even showed up yet, but he's easy prey. He's left himself wide open to getting lured and trapped. So much of the battle starts right there. And in fact, so many battles could be avoided completely if we would just learn this much of the lesson. So so that's the first takeaway. Sexual sin preys on the vulnerable. Are you leaving yourself vulnerable like this guy did? Second, though, sexual sin preys on your pride. See that in verses 10 to 15 here. It says, behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and, here, and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. So surprise, surprise, this guy is passing along this woman's street in the road to her house, and she comes out and finds him. Like, I love how Solomon's like, and behold, like, huh, who would have ever guessed? Like, nobody saw that coming. Everything we've already looked at has been preparing us, though, for this woman to be sexual sin personified, and that's exactly what the description of her shows her to be here. The way she's dressed, the way she acts, and ultimately, the way she speaks, Right in the middle of all of it, both at the end of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13, we're reminded again, though, that this is all a trap. Like she's been lying in wait, lying in ambush, and and somebody wandered into her net, and she pounces on him. Like she seizes him. She hasn't even said a word yet, but he's caught. And look at one of the first ways that she gets her hooks in him. Verse 15 here. Her, Her first move is to convince him that he's not just some random person, but that she's been preparing specifically for him and looking specifically for him. And she's so happy she found him. Look, we'll see in a minute how sexual sin appeals to our senses and desires, but I don't think it's any accident that before she does that, she plays on his pride. She tells him how special he is and how much she wants him. Like, we can convince ourselves that sexual sin is first and foremost a physical thing or a visual thing, but before it's that, it's a pride thing. Like, sexual sin is rooted in pride. Pride puts you at the center of the universe and tells you that everything should revolve around you. It gives you the mentality that it's okay for you to take whatever you want or whoever you want or fulfill whatever desires that you have, even that you deserve that person or that pleasure. Even more than that, pride is selfish and self-centered. It takes from the other person and uses the other person for my own desires and my own pleasure. It's the exact opposite of what marriage and sex in marriage is supposed to be. It's not using the other person for my pleasure, but giving myself for theirs. But sexual sin twists and distorts that self-giving and self-sacrificing that's supposed to characterize love and marriage and and sex in marriage and makes it all about me. It's self-love. It's self-worship. And that's exactly what this woman plays off here. She, She knows that if she makes it all about him and convinces him that he's the one she wants, if she plays off his pride, she'll tangle him up in her trap. There's an important lesson in there. 
Maybe to really see victory over sexual sin, you need to see how it's rooted in pride, how it's rooted in self-worship, and you need to fight the battle there. Third, then, sexual sin appeals to your senses and desires. Verse 16 and through 18 here, it says, I've spread my couch with coverings. She says, I've colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. So notice here how, how the woman appeals to all of the man's senses and what she offers him. First, with her smooth words and seductive speech, she's appealing to his sense of hearing, like her words and her tone are targeted to lure him in. And again, that's, that's the primary thing that Solomon was warning his son about, trying to guard him against. But she appeals to him with way more than just words. Second, we, we kind of skipped over this a minute ago, but in verse 14, where she's talking about offering a sacrifice that day, probably what's going on there is, is that type of sacrifice involved offering meat that the person would then take home and eat for dinner. So she's definitely insinuating that she's available and offering him herself, but she's also probably offering him a meal. Um, like she's playing on his appetite or his sense of, of taste and, and drawing him in with that. Third, she appeals to his sense of sight in verse 16. She's got these beautiful, colorful furniture and, and coverings in her house that would be visually appealing and attractive. Like he can picture the scene in his mind from her description. Verse 17, she appeals to his sense of smell by describing the perfume of myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Again, stirring up his senses even more so that he can picture himself there. And then finally in verse 18, she appeals to his sense of touch by explicitly offering for him to come with her and spend the night with her. And so do you see how all this is going back to chapter 6, verse 25, that, that sexual sin begins in the heart. All of this is intended to draw this man closer and closer to actually giving in to sexual sin by stirring his heart, stirring his imagination so that it's so real in his head that he's already come right up to the edge of the cliff and it makes taking that last step over the edge that much easier. So she traps him first by playing on his pride, second by appealing to his senses and desires and stirring them up so that in his mind he's already there. And then third, Sexual sin promises that there won't be any consequences. Promises there won't be any consequences. She says, for my husband is not at home, in verse 19. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Like, this is the final piece of the trap. She tells him that her husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey, won't be back for days. So it's totally safe. No one's gonna catch them. No one will know. They'll be able to enjoy this pleasure with no consequences except that we already know that that's a lie. We already know from chapter six that the consequences of sexual sin are inevitable and inescapable. We've already looked at where all this ends at the end of chapter seven. Her house sounds like a place of pleasure with no consequences, but it's the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. It's a trap that ends in suffering, shame, and death. Uh, but if this pattern of temptation sounds familiar to you, these, these steps that she took him through, it, it should. Like, think back to the very first temptation in the garden, back in Genesis chapter 3. How did the serpent trap Adam and Eve? First, he played on their pride, right? He told them that if they would eat from the tree, they would be like God. Then he appealed to their senses and desires. They saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was to be desired to make one wise. And he promised that there wouldn't be any consequences, right? You will not surely die. 
the woman in Proverbs 7 here, she's described just, just like the serpent. She's described as wily of heart. Could also be translated as crafty, just like the serpent who is more crafty than all the other beasts. And, in, and just like giving into the serpent's temptation trapped Adam and Eve and brought death into the world, giving into this temptation of sexual sin traps you and leads to death. And so hear the serious warning in this. Like, don't go down the path of sexual sin. Look where it ends. And look how it traps you and holds on to you. Like, don't convince yourself that you can get away with just dipping your toe in the water. Sexual sin is a monster that's waiting to grab you and pull you under. Like, too many people know that from experience and are fighting to get free. Oh, but at the same time, like, seeing the connection between the serpent and sexual sin here is the key to all of this, not ending with despair, but ending with hope. Because immediately after Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation of the serpent and brought death on themselves and all creation, God made a promise to send a serpent slayer who would undo what they had done, one who would defeat death and set them free. And that's exactly what he did. He sent his son Jesus to be born as a human, to face all the temptations that we have faced. But instead of giving in, he resisted. Where we have all failed over and over, trapping ourselves in sin and walking the path that leads to death, Jesus embodied wisdom and walked the path that leads to life. Then he went to the cross and he took on himself the death that each of us deserve for choosing the foolish path. But it was not possible for death to hold him. He defeated death and rose again, becoming the firstborn of the new creation. And now all who repent, who turn away from their sins, and who trust in Jesus and rest completely in his sacrifice in your place are united with him by faith in his death and resurrection. So we just saw pictured in baptism at the beginning of our service. And so just think about what that means. Just listen to Romans 6 in light of everything that we've talked about this morning. Romans 6, starting in verse 3, says, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Oh, do you hear it there? Like if you're trusting in Jesus, you've been transferred from the path that leads to death to the path that leads to life. And you're no longer enslaved to sin. You're no longer trapped. You're set free. Oh, do you hear that brother or sister who feels trapped by sexual sin? Like it's not too late for you. If you've never trusted in Jesus the way I just shared with you, you, you can do that today. You can cry out to him to forgive you and rescue you right where you're sitting. And, and talk to me or talk to someone else before you leave this morning. I'd love to talk to you more about what it looks like to, to repent, put your trust in Jesus and follow him. If you are a Christian, but you feel trapped by your sexual sin, hear this, there, there's hope. Like Jesus has set you free. You can have victory over sexual sin. That's the ultimate goal of this passage here, that we would be guarded against sexual sin. So I want to end our time together by talking about just really practically what that looks like. Um, you can see that next year, how to guard against sexual sin. I think it's important 
that we end by talking about how to do this because this can be so easily, I think, where so many people get stuck. Um, in his book, More Than a Battle, um, Joe Rigney talks about two dangers of applying the gospel to our life. He says the first danger is legalism. He says legalism seeks to create godly conduct with no reference to gospel realities. And of course, this doesn't work because rootless trees don't bear good fruit. We must have gospel life coursing through our veins if we want to have gospel conduct coming out our fingertips. So we, we want to guard against that. But on the other hand is the danger of what he calls bare repetition of the gospel, which, which is just as dangerous. And he uses this helpful illustration. He says, legalism tries to clean the corners of the bathroom without any disinfectant and just ends up smearing the grime around. Repetition has the cleaner in hand, but never actually gets around to scrubbing. It never pushes the gospel into the corners. Instead, it just waves the cleaner in the general direction of the grime. It attempts to wield the gospel like a magic word, speaking it like a mantra in the vicinity of a sin or struggle in hopes that something remarkable will happen. And because the gospel is front and center, it has the appearance of avoiding the problem of legalism, but it doesn't actually address the sin in question. Both of those we want to avoid in how we respond to this this morning. And so instead of either legalism or bare repetition, we want to actually apply the gospel um, and so this is how Joe Rigney um, describes and defines that. He says, applying the gospel is bringing the weight of the good news to bear on a particular sin in such a way that the specifics of the gospel connect with the specifics of the sin at hand by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's what I want to take just a minute at the end of our time here to, to do uh, this morning, to not just wave the cleaner around and hope something happens, but to actually bring the weight of the gospel to bear on sexual sin and give a couple of really practical steps to take in guarding against sexual sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so there's really two main steps to guarding against sexual sin. You can see those here on, on your handout, the two main bullet points. Two main steps are dealing with your heart, dealing with your habits. Like to guard yourself against sexual sin, you need to deal with your heart, you need to deal with your habits. We saw that in chapter 6, verse 21. We saw that in chapter 7, verse 3. You see it again in chapter 7, verse 25. You need to have your heart tuned into the voice of wisdom so that it won't respond to the voice of sexual sin. And then you need to live out wisdom in your actions so that you don't even start down the path of sexual sin. You need to apply wisdom to both. You need to apply the gospel to both. So, so what does that look like? How do you do that? I think Romans 6 is a great example, going back to that passage that I read just a minute ago. After Paul presents the reality of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel and who we are in him, in the following verses, he, he highlights two responses. First, in verse 11, he says, So, in light of that, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how you apply the gospel to your heart. You consider certain things to be true. You press the truth into your heart and mind. You meditate on the reality that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You, you preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself of who you are. So getting really practical, this can happen a number of ways throughout the day. And, and these aren't on your handout. You can write some of them down if you want. But there's, there's a lot of more ideas besides these. But, but it starts with just spending time in the word and prayer. Making time daily to read the word let it shape your heart, shape your thoughts. And then talking to God, confessing your sin to him, asking him to lead you not into temptation. 
Like if you're not doing that, it's no wonder that your heart is drawn in other directions. Beyond that, memorizing and meditating on scripture is a powerful tool for dealing with your heart. Like pick a verse that speaks directly to your struggle. Put it on the home screen of your phone. Print it out on a little card and carry it around with you and review it throughout the day. But the point is not to just repeat the words. You want to meditate on it. You want to chew on the words. You want to pray them into your heart. Like the goal in in memorization is not necessarily to be able to just recite the words cold, but to have your heart shaped by those words. Beyond those things, think about how you could use other, other things, music, podcasts, an audio Bible, good books, or other means to fill your mind with truth throughout the day. Like so often, we're letting all those things, the music we listen to, the podcasts we listen to, the TV shows we watch, other things shape us in so many ways more than we know. Like that's one of the things I've really been confronted with throughout this Proverbs series is I've just been so much more aware of how every choice that I'm making throughout the day is either moving me down the path of wisdom toward life or it's moving me down the path of folly towards death. Like there, there are other ideas as well, but there's a few ways to practically deal with your heart and hopefully get you started and um, lead into more conversation. That's not all Solomon says to do here, though, in Proverbs. And it's not all Paul says to do in Romans 6. Like, to really guard yourself against sexual sin, you need to write wisdom on the tablet of your heart and bind it on your fingers. You need to not let your heart turn aside to her ways and not actually stray with your body into her path. So go back to Romans 6 as well. Verse 11 says you must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Verse 12 Also, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So you need to deal with your heart, but you also need to deal with your habits. So what are some practical gospel-rooted ways to do that? Well, here's a few suggestions, and and these are on your handout here. The first two um, bullet points that you have on there, you can read more about in the book that I mentioned a minute ago, More Than a Battle by Joe Rigney. Uh, Like, if this is something you struggle with, I'd highly recommend getting that book and reading it through with someone who can help you apply some of these practical steps. Um, And so, yeah, leaning heavily on that book, here's a couple of things you can do. First thing you need to do is identify where you're most vulnerable to sexual sin and take drastic action to cut it off. Like basically the goal here is to identify the access points that sexual sin has in your life and completely remove them. Like the goal is that this would only be necessary for a certain amount of time um, until you can establish healthy habits going forward. But, But the point is that depending on what your biggest struggle is, This might mean getting rid of your smartphone, might mean getting rid of your social media accounts, it might mean establishing some rules to not use the internet or watch TV alone or those kinds of things. And so I I know the temptation in that is to make excuses, like to say that, man, but I can't get get by without that. Like I have to have my smartphone. I I need to have internet at home. I, I can't practically always have somebody there when I'm doing these things. And yes, I know any of these steps would be really inconvenient. But remember the warning from Proverbs 6 and 7 here. Like, this is serious. Like, this is life or death. Jesus said that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off because it's better to go to heaven without a hand than for your whole body to end up in hell. Like, if you're not willing to take this kind of drastic action, how serious are you about getting free from this sin? 
So, so cut off any access points that sexual sin has in your life. And then second, connected deeply, closely with this, establish accountability to, to recalibrate your conscience and form healthy patterns of repentance. The goal with this step then is to have somebody that you will confess to whenever you break the commitments that you made in that first point, even if they didn't lead you to actually commit sexual sin. And the point in that is that sexual sin hardens and deadens your conscience so that it stops triggering when it should. So the goal of this kind of accountability is to to recalibrate your conscience, to establish healthy patterns of honesty and repentance. Again, more than a battle has has practical advice when it comes to what that kind of accountability can look like. So uh, if you need some more steps and help with that, that'd be a great resource for you to look at. And then finally, you can see this here, pursue a balanced diet of wisdom. Um, And again, this is the point of the whole passage. Pursuing wisdom will guard you from pursuing sexual sin. So how are you pursuing wisdom? Ties in with what I was talking about just a minute ago under dealing with your heart. There's a lot of overlap between both of these. Like we're being shaped by so many more things than we realize. What we listen to, what we read, what we watch, who we spend time with. The goal here is to really think through what sources you're using to pursue wisdom. Probably the most helpful resource I've read on this is Brett McCracken's book, The Wisdom Pyramid. Like he looks at different sources of wisdom and he uses the food pyramid. If you're familiar with that, I know they've kind of changed it up recently. So maybe you gotta be my age or, or older to, to remember the food pyramid. Um, but, but man, it's a really helpful grid to think through this in. Um, like just like with food, you need all the different food groups, but you need them, you need more of some of them, you need less of some of them, you need them in proper balance with each other and their proper portion, proportions. Like that's a helpful way to think about sources of wisdom. Some of the sources of wisdom, like the Bible and church, need to be in much larger proportions, and they need to be at the foundation of the pyramid. You need to be building everything else around them. Um, but you can also find sources of wisdom in other places. It doesn't mean that you've got to cut everything else off. It just means that you need to have them in their right place and in their right proportion. Um, there, there's ways that you can find wisdom in, in music, in nature, um, even, even the internet and social media, if you use it at the right time and right place. And if it's at the top of the pyramid and a little bit, not on the bottom of the pyramid and like the whole thing, you know. So the, the, the whole point is to spend some time considering how you can be more intentional about where you're pursuing wisdom. You need to cut off the access to sexual sin, be accountable to somebody, and then you need to fill your mind and build habits around taking in and pursuing wisdom. Because the more you pursue wisdom, again, the whole point of this whole thing, the more you pursue wisdom is that the more you will be guarded against sexual sin. So there, there's a whole lot more practical application we could get into. But, but again, my hope in all of this is that it, it will just fuel the conversations that have already started, that, it, that it'll be something you can take from here, go back into your DCs, go into your friend groups, the people you already have accountability relationships with, and continue to talk about this together. And so let me, let me close with this. The reality is in all this that this is, this is a lifelong war, and there are many, many battles to be fought. And so to think about resisting sexual sin for the rest of your life, for, for some of you, may feel impossible to you to do right now. But, but that's not what God's calling you to do. He's calling you to trust him and resist sexual sin today. He's calling you to resist right now through, the power of his, uh, through his power at work in you. And so I hope and pray that everything that we've talked about today will help you do that. But remember this, if you're in Christ, the end is already certain. 
he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So don't give up, don't quit. Fix your eyes on Jesus, rest in his righteousness, remember who you are in him, and keep taking steps of obedience until you see him face to face. Would you pray with me? Father, it's a heavy passage, um, hard things to, to say. Um, and I know just looking around this room, um, how many of us struggle with this in different ways. How many of us have been trapped and feel trapped and, and in a lot of ways at the moment are trapped by sexual sin. And Lord, the last thing that I wanna do, the last thing that, that I know you wanna do through this passage is to just pile on anybody, to, to leave them feeling hopeless and to leave them feeling stuck and to just heap guilt on them. Oh, that, that's, how, that's how the tempter works. He tempts us into the sin and then turns on us and accuses us that we've done it and causes us to want to wallow in our guilt. And Lord, that's the last thing that I want anybody to do walking away from this. So would you protect us from that this morning? Protect us, anyone in this room, from just wallowing in their guilt and feeling that this hopeless and that there's nothing they can do. Lord, I pray that this would do the exact opposite, that it would, that it would show them how they can be free, show them how they are free in Jesus, that through his death and through his resurrection, their, dealt, their death has been dealt with and they've been set free from sin. Oh God, I pray that that would give them hope and I pray that that would, would give them just courage and, and, and energy and, and willingness to begin to, to fight against sexual sin, to fight to get out of the trap that they've walked into because they've been set free in Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would take some of these practical steps that we talked about then in light of the gospel realities, that first and foremost, they would deal with their heart, that they'd remember who they are in Christ, that they would just, again, preach the gospel to themselves, press the gospel deep into their heart, and then out of the overflow of that, Lord, I pray that those roots would then begin to grow fruit of them actually cutting it off in their life, actually getting rid of the sources of sexual sin that that tempt them and that keep them trapped, and actually pursuing wisdom that will help them grow in holiness and guard them against sexual sin. God, ultimately, Jesus is the wisdom that we need. He is the ultimate fulfillment and embodiment of the wisdom that we see all through Proverbs. And so, God, I pray that our hearts would be drawn to him, that we would look to him, we would rest in his righteousness, that we would remember who we are in him, that we'd fix our eyes on him, that we would look forward to the day that we will see him face to face, and that step by step, day by day, we would resist sin, walk toward him, knowing that in him we've been set free and we have victory over it. God, I pray that that would be the result of this. Lord, help us then to to pray this would just fuel conversation within our body, that the conversation that started, the questions that are being asked, that this would just help and build on those and that we'd be able to, to, in wise and careful ways, but in open and honest ways, be able to talk with these, about these things with one another and help one another to walk in holiness and to walk in repentance um, and to see victory over sexual sin in our lives. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.